0: There was a shift that took place with the ministry of Christ from the focus on Israel to the focus of God's work in the world being through the church.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. Today Tom has part three of his six-part series titled The Church in God's Eternal Plan. Last time we looked at the three primary positions concerning the relationship between Israel and the Church – covenantalism, classic dispensationalism, and progressive dispensationalism. Tom defined each position, examining the similarities between Israel and the Church. Well, today we'll examine what makes Israel and the Church different, uniquely set apart from each other. It is these commonalities and differences that will determine which expression of the body of Christ you participate in and how that body operates in faithfulness to the Word of God today. Keep all that in mind as we join Tom Pennington now on The Word Unleashed.
0: Relationships mean that I am genuinely interested in all that pertains to that person with whom I have a relationship and whom I have learned to love. There's a great application of that tonight. Because on the surface, some of the things that we have recorded for us in Scripture don't seem immediately applicable, do they? They don't seem immediately to benefit me and my life. I mean, what's the takeaway value of tonight's lesson is a question we unfortunately often ask. And we want to ignore those sections of the Word of God or at least sort of gloss over them if they don't go to the heart of what we're struggling with day by day. That's why when you get those flyers in the mail from all these seeker-sensitive churches, it's all about relationships and marriage and because those are the perceived needs and those are the things in the Word of God that they think will strike a chord in people. People don't want to hear about, for example, the relationship between Israel and the church. But folks, the same application that happens in the relationship with Sheila and me, the same reason that I hung on every word of her letters, whether it was her plans for the next several days and what they were going to see and what her dad was preaching on, or whether it was about some detail in her family, was because I loved Sheila. The same thing ought to be true when we come to the Word of God. The Word is God's revelation of Himself to us. And if He believed it was important, then it ought to be important to us by virtue of the fact that we love our God and we believe that He's all wise and that if He took the time and effort and energy to give us this truth, then it must have value for us whether we see that value or not. So that's where we come tonight is back to the issue of of the church and God's eternal plan. And specifically, we began last time to ask and answer this question, what is the relationship between Israel and the church? Now, by the way, as I mentioned last time, there are very practical ramifications of this question. It determines what you believe about the future. It determines what kind of church you will attend. It it determines whether or not you will have your children dedicated. There are a lot of very serious ramifications to this question that aren't always immediately obvious to people. We were looking, though, at so what are the various views? There are essentially three primary positions of the relationship between Israel and the church. One of them is covenantalism. This view says that either the entire nation of Israel in the Old Testament was the church, or a modified form of it is that the true believers in Israel were the Old Testament church. Now, we will answer these arguments tonight as we examine the differences the Bible lays out between the church and Israel. A second common view is the traditional or classic dispensational view. This view taught that God has two completely distinct purposes in human history, one for the earth through Israel and a second for heaven through the church. And we answered their arguments last time by examining the great similarities that there are between Israel and the church. The third view is the one that I would encourage us to embrace and that I embrace. It's often called progressive dispensationalism. And it holds that, in fact, there are great similarities between Israel and the church, but there are a few noted differences. Let me remind you of the, the similarities that we looked at last time Both Old Testament Israel and the church contain the true people of God. There are not two different ways of salvation. There are not two different paths to God. There is one people of God that is is part of God's plan. I'm trying to think how I want to say this. That is part of God's plan in various phases. And we'll see that in more detail in just a few minutes. Both Old Testament Israel, another similarity is both Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church are saved by the work of Christ. There is in the doctrinal statement of a theological seminary here locally a statement that claims that the Old Testament believer had no clue beyond the animal sacrifice and that is solely where their faith rested, was in that sacrifice. But as we talked about last time, beginning in Genesis chapter 3, The people of God understood that a person would come to deal finally with sin. They didn't understand all that we understand about him, but they knew there was a person that would come. And the detail about that person comes greater and greater as you find your way through Old Testament history. Down to when you get to Micah, as I said, you find out exactly where he'd even be born. Thirdly, both appropriate salvation in the same way, by faith, Alone. There weren't two ways of salvation. In fact, there was one way, always the same way, as Paul says in Romans 4 Abraham's way, David's way, the way that you and I need to take, which is by grace, through faith alone. Both Old Testament Israel and the church benefited from the work of the Spirit, and both were assigned the same responsibility to be a witness nation, and then finally, both are beneficiaries of the new covenant now those are the similarities but at the same time the scripture is clear that while there are great similarities there are also clear distinctions between Israel and the church what are those distinctions well there are three of them I believe if I could summarize it this way the first is that the Israel and the Old Testament Israel and the church are different in their distinct identities They're simply not the same entity. In the Old Testament, Israel, that term throughout the Old Testament, refers to an ethnic people, the physical descendants of Abraham, and a nation. Always an ethnic people, those who share the blood of Abraham, and a nation. In the New Testament, when you come to speak of Israel, the word Israel occurs 66 times in the New Testament. All but one of those references clearly refer to ethnic Israel, to Jewish people, to the physical descendants of Abraham. We'll talk about that one in just a moment. Jesus, when he spoke about the people of God, he spoke of the kingdom of God or of physical Israel. He only referred, as we've seen before, to the church in two contexts, in Matthew 16 when he predicted the church would begin in Matthew 18 when he explained how church discipline was to work. Those were the only two references. The only clear time reference pointed to the church as a future reality. When you come to the early church, you see this same distinction between Israel and the church carried out. For example, in Acts 1-6, the apostles wanted to know if the kingdom would at that time be restored to whom? to the nation Israel, composed primarily of Jewish people. Then you come to Acts 2, and at Pentecost, Peter addresses the Jewish people as you men of Israel. And the church was born out of that group, but was not equal to it. 3,000 of them became part of the church that day. After founding of the, at the founding of the church, the church in Israel are, are referred to as two separate, distinct entities. And I won't take you through, but in Acts, constantly, Israel is referred to as the Jewish nation, not the church. Turn to just the last one I have there, Acts 21, verse 19. Paul is now in Jerusalem. He's meeting with, the, with James and all the elders. Verse 18 tells us, in verse 19, After he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God, and they said to Him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. So in other words, James and the elders in Jerusalem said, There is Israel, and out of Israel there have been those that have truly believed. And that constitutes the church. In Romans 9, Paul clearly refers to Israel in distinction from the church and as ethnic Israel. And I show you this just because this is the pattern throughout the New Testament. Romans chapter 9, verse 3, I could wish myself a curse separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. So constantly there is this separation. As he writes, the Roman church... There is the separation between the church and Israel. 1 Corinthians 10.32, Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. In the mind of the apostle, obviously three separate distinct entities. Never once, in fact, is the church clearly referred to as Israel or the new Israel. Never once in the New Testament. Now, with that said, I told you there was only one passage that is debated. Let's look at it briefly. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 6, or you can see it here on the screen, whichever you prefer. Galatians 6, verse 16. Paul says, in the context of, of course, the Galatian heresy and the skewed version of the Gospel, he says in verse 15, "...neither circumcision is anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature." In other words, none of that stuff matters... The issue is, have you given up any hope you have of attaining a righteousness of your own based on law-keeping, whether it's circumcision or anything else, and clinging to Christ alone as your hope? Then he says, verse 16, and those who will walk by this rule, that is, giving up everything else but Christ, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, there are three interpretations of this verse, as you might imagine, all based on the meaning of that second and, and upon the Israel of God. The Greek word is Kai, a simple, copula, like we have in English, and. Three interpretations based on the meaning of that word. The first is, the church is the new Israel. They would translate it this way, those who walk by this rule, even the Israel of God. So the church is this new Israel. A second view is that the church and Israel are completely distinct in every way. This is the traditional dispensational view. The first, of course, being the covenantal view. This view says, it should be translated like this, those who walk by this rule, Gentiles, and on the other hand, the Israel of God. Two totally distinct, never-meet entities. There's a third view that I embrace, and I think bears our study bears out, and that is that the church now includes those who were once Israelites physically and have now become the true spiritual children of Abraham. So we would translate it like this, those who walk by this rule, especially the true Israel of God, in comparison to, in contradiction of, the Judaizers that were there in the Galatian churches. Okay? So... This third view really seems the most likely since Paul nowhere else calls the church Israel. And there are two views that don't have Israel and the church being the same thing. Even Robert Raymond, who is a, a wonderful author, he has a great systematic theology, but he's a covenantalist, he has to admit, quote, it is possible that Paul intended to refer exclusively to Jewish Christians by this expression. My point here is, This verse, the one verse on which they really primarily hang their hopes, does not, in fact, say what it is often made to say Israel and the church, based on the preponderance of evidence, are different, distinct entities. There's a second way they're different they are different in their distinct economies. Traditional or classic dispensationalists listen carefully, you may have heard this and if you've heard this it's not good if you embrace it. Okay. Traditional or classic dispensationalists argued that plan A when Jesus came was for Jesus to offer the kingdom to Israel during his earthly ministry and if they accepted he would immediately establish an earthly kingdom. Now just think about that view for a moment. That view has several huge problems. First of all It makes the death of Christ for sins optional because if Israel had accepted the kingdom, he would have immediately ushered it in and his death would not have occurred. Secondly, it makes the church plan B, as some would call it, a parenthesis in God's program. Folks, it's much better when you look at the weight of evidence to see the church and Israel as distinctive but intentional phases of God's great eternal plan the church wasn't a whoops because you know israel didn't accept him as her king no the church was part of god's great eternal plan as we've seen these economies are phases of god's operation old testament israel and the church have great spiritual similarities But there is one key spiritual difference that helps us see that Old Testament Israel and the church are distinct phases in God's operation. And that key spiritual difference is the baptism with the Spirit. This baptism with the Spirit was prophesied in the Old Testament in several different references. And when John the Baptist came, he prophesied that the Messiah would accomplish it. In Matthew 3, for example, he says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I. I'm not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Then in John 1, John the Baptist makes the connection between Jesus and this prophecy. He says, This is the one, the one on whom the dove descended at his baptism. Jesus himself, this is the one who I told you would baptize with the Spirit. But then when you come to Acts 1-5, it hasn't yet happened. In Acts 1-5, Jesus says to the disciples before his ascension, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. When you come to Acts 11, it's already happened. Peter says, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Of course, Peter's referring back to Pentecost. So this baptism with the Spirit first happened at Pentecost. It's very clear. But when you get to the Corinthian epistle, 1 Corinthians 12:13. This baptism with the Spirit is now standard operating procedure for anybody who's a part of the body of Christ or the church. Paul there, talking about spiritual giftedness, says to the Corinthians, to all the Corinthians who are in Christ, for by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So that has become now a constant reality. Obviously, there is a shift happening in the plan and program of God. This was something that was not true with Old Testament Israel that became true in the New Testament ministry of the Spirit of God. I can't give you every little nuance of difference. I can tell you this. When I look at the Old Testament believer and the New Testament saint, spiritually speaking, this is the one primary difference I see is that New Testament believers are baptized with the Spirit into the body of Christ. There is no hint that that was true in the Old Testament. In fact, all these verses indicate that it was not true and that it actually began for the first time at Pentecost. That really is the key spiritual difference between us and them. Now, there are a couple of other passages that show there was a shift going on, a shift in God's great eternal plan between Israel and the church, Turn with me to Matthew 21. What I want you to see, when I, when I say there are distinct economies, maybe another word I could use would be phases in God's plan or program. These were This was all part of God's plan. Israel wasn't a mistake. The church wasn't a mistake. They both were intended to be exactly operating as they operate. But they operated under different time periods. There was a shift that took place with the ministry of Christ from the focus on Israel to the focus of God's work in the world being through the church. And we see this in a number of passages. Look at Matthew 21 and verse 33. Beginning in verse 33 and and running all the way through chapter 22, verse 10, Jesus tells two parables. And these two parables illustrate this very reality. In verse 33, he says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a winepress in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. Now, if you have a New American Standard, or most translations will have that text in all capitals to show that it's actually taken, it's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 5. Any Jewish person hearing Jesus use these words would have understood that it was a reference. The vineyard here is a reference to the nation Israel. You see that very clearly in Isaiah chapter 5, if we were to go back. They would have understood that's what he was talking about. Verse 34, when the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves, larger than the first, and did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. You immediately make the connection here. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir, come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? Now, obviously, the vineyard here is Israel. These slaves that are sent are the Old Testament prophets that were abused by the people of God, the Old Testament people of God, Israel. And eventually God sent His Son. Jesus is, of course, prophesying what will happen to Him at the end of His ministry. Verse 41, They said to Him, not yet making the connection, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay Him the proceeds at the proper seasons. They were prophesying against themselves. These other vine growers, that is an allusion to to the church, to Gentiles. There's a transition in God's program. And he goes on to describe that he himself is being rejected by them. Verse 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, now he applies it, and given to a people producing, literally to a nation, producing the fruit of it. Verse 45, they got it chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables they understood he was speaking about them they sought to seize him they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet
1: That's Tom Pennington here on the Word Unleashed with part 3 of his series The Church and God's Eternal Plan Tom will have part 4 for you on our next program and we hope you'll join us then Well Tom Is it enough to conclude that while differences and similarities exist between the church and the people of Israel, God's work in the world is now being accomplished through the church? Is that correct?
0: That's exactly right, Bill. When it comes down to it, we can all agree on this. In today's world, God is accomplishing His plan and purpose in His redemptive plan in and through the church of Jesus Christ. And so that's the primary entity to which we should belong. There are a lot of good things you can be involved in, a lot of organizations you can be connected to, a lot of things that you can invest your time in. But in the end, there is nothing on this planet that matters more to our God and to his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, than the church. And not just the church invisible, the church at large, but rather the local manifestations of the church. All of the letters of the New Testament were written to churches or to those who pastored local churches, and so it matters to our Lord that we are connected to, belonging to, and serving in a local church. I hope that's true of you. If it is, then give God thanks for the church you belong to. If it's not, then you need to find a place where you can truly invest in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Thanks, Tom. And friend, to serve as an elder in a local church is a noble ambition, but it comes with a sobering responsibility. The existing church leadership must actively be seeking to identify, equip, and appoint elders to continue the work of ministry. Invite your pastor and other church leaders to join Tom Pennington February 18th in South Lake, Texas, as he is a featured speaker at this year's XL Ministries Training Conference, Becoming Biblical Elders. Visit the WordUnleashed.org for more information and registration links to the conference.